This gun sure looks deadly, but it's not the least bit deadly unless I point it at someone and pull the trigger. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Hello everybody, just before the video gets started, I wanted to make a quick announcement and thank everybody for over 200 subscribers on YouTube and over a thousand followers on Twitter. Uh, it's also about our one year anniversary for the channel. And so to thank you all, I'm doing a giveaway um, which the link will be in the description. Uh, there'll be three winners. Two of the winners will get a book um, from the selection on screen, and the other winner will get to choose one t-shirt design from my merch store to get sent to them for free. Um, as you can see, we have two new t-shirt designs as well for the giveaway, and as well, if you use code one year at checkout, on my merch store you'll get 15% off. I want to thank you guys again for all you do to support the channel and make sure you go to the link in the description to join the giveaway and uh, go to the merch store and take advantage of the 15% off. Alright, hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Hello everybody and welcome back to Repeal the 20th Century. Today I have with me Dr. David Gordon. Would you like to introduce yourself, Doctor? Oh, hi. Uh, my name's David Gordon. I'm a senior fellow at the Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama. I live in Los Angeles, but I work for them and I write the articles and book reviews of various kinds. Yeah, um, I really wanted to have you on, Dr. Gordon, uh, because I've, I've, of course, read your work, but also we met um, at Mises University back in 2021. And um, I was just very much wowed by uh, your talks and, and getting to speak to you. And I think um, out of everyone I've seen explain exactly what praxeology is and argumentation ethics for that matter too, uh, I think you have the best explanation. So I wanted to have you on uh, to kind of give those explanations to my audience because I think a lot of members of my audience, even the ones who are more well-versed in Austrian theory and, and, and Austrian economics and philosophy in the philosophy of libertarianism uh, kind of struggle with praxeology. So uh, I wanted to ask first, what is praxeology in, in the most basic sense? Uh, well, uh, praxeology can really uh, is according to Mises, living by Mises, is the science of human action and. It's carried out in the way Mises uh, Murray Rothbard conceived it in a deductive fashion. That's to say, you start with the, the concept of action or the axiom that human beings act, 
and then you deduce various consequences from that. So it's uh, in contrast to say, uh, what would be the case say, in history or some of the empirical sciences, you're not relying uh, on primarily on empirical observations, but you're just starting with this axiom of uh, some subsidiary postulates and going from there. And it, I should say, although Mises uh, defined praxeology as the science of human action, sometimes the word praxeology has come to be used for the distinct deductive method used in that science. So Rothbard often uses it that way. So uh, praxeology that would be the deductive method rather than the science itself. But the two means obviously go together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a very succinct um, definition of, of praxeology. Um, but I also wanted to get into more, what does that mean in using it? What, what does it look like when we use the praxeological method versus, you know, the more empirical methods of, um, I would say, is more conventional in, in modern economics and social sciences in general? Well, an example might be this, that uh, in conventional economics, uh, they would for, they would formulate a certain model which would also be deductive very often mathematical for and then you would test that out for example uh, they would say that uh, supposing you have a number of units of a good they would say well we're, we have the hypothesis that the marginal utility of each additional unit of the good will decrease, and then they would try to test that out, perhaps by looking at senior behavior. They would use this in trying to construct demand and supply curve. But in the praxeological view, in the Austrian view, this would be deduced from the nature of the good. You would say you would, it would follow from notion of action that you would always try to choose your highest rank preference so if you had a number of units of a good you would put the first unit of the good to the preference rank highest and subsequent uses to goods of lesser value so you see the way that would be done it wouldn't be an empirical matter it wouldn't be something like saying well uh, say i like ice cream so i'd say well okay i like the first scoop but if i have enough scoops of ice cream then i'll get sick of it so i won't like ice cream again. that would be a psychological conjecture that would very often be true. It wouldn't be true in my case because we need the more ice cream, the better. But in uh, praxeology, we wouldn't be reasoning in that way. We'd just go according to this deductive method, just from the notion of, that you would always 
pick your highest rank graph elements. Yeah, I, I think I think that kind of demonstrates a, a big difference in the way that praxeology and, and empiricism works. Um, but I wanted to ask about this kind of because I think there is a bit of a misconception that a lot of people get when they hear talking about praxeology that um, Austrians completely reject any kind of empirics or statistics. And um, I wanted to get your thoughts on, on the view of the Austrian view of statistics and um, whether or not they actually do play a role in our praxeological deduction, whether it is to, you know, just show that this thing is happening or if, you know, statistics don't really don't have any usage at all. Well, the use of statistics and other empirical matter would come in when you're using the theory or illustrating it, showing how it applies in practice. Say you would have the closing and say, uh, well, uh, <clears throat> we know in the uh, law of demand, we would know as the price of a good decreases, other things the people will tend to demand more of it. But supposing we wanted to know what for a specific commodity people had demanded, what price they demanded at various times, statistics could be used there. But we wouldn't be able to according to Mises, we wouldn't be able to formulate laws of a statistical kind, say that, say the demand for a certain commodity, probably the elasticity of the demand would be such and such. And in human action, uh, Mises has a criticism of the University of Chicago economist Henry Schultz, who tried to measure the elasticity of demand certain commodities and Mises said, well, this is all right, he's just shown this for a particular time, but it isn't a universal law, the praxeological laws are universal, but the illustration of them is a matter of how they apply in a particular situation, and that can certainly uh, involve the use of statistics. If you look, for example, at the Murray Rothbard book, 1963, America's Great Depression, he certainly uses it for many statistics illustrating the Austrian theory of the business cycle. So it isn't that statistics have no use, it's just they're not used in developing a formal theory. I think a lot of people kind of think that um, there is no place at all for statistics and, and that, that Austrians completely reject the use of statistics at all. But I think that succinctly explains like the actual view and what we precisely mean when we talk about these things. So I, I appreciate that. Um, but I wanted to, to ask you what you thought the limits of praxeology are because I think there are some people in our circles who think 
that praxeology has no limits, and I wanted to see if you if you thought that there was uh, a realm in which praxeology wouldn't be uh, appropriate to use as as a method of detection. Uh, I think that what praxeology does it's concerned with the what we call the form of an action rather than particular action. So we want to know take any action that we like and say what are the qualities of an action what can we figure out about an action from that but it, it, the limits of the, wouldn't tell you about particular facts about human action say uh, supposing it wouldn't tell you why people pick various actions and why people make certain choices. That would be a matter for psychology to investigate when they tell you, say, uh, why uh, you're looking at a historical event, say, why did uh, Abraham Lincoln decide to not to allow the Southern states to secede after he took office? Praxeology wouldn't answer that, although we could use praxeological theorems sometimes and explain it and help you explain particular events. So I wouldn't talk about particular details. Now another limitation of praxeology that I always try to get the students in the various kinds of lecture to uh, understand that they, they don't they don't except what I say, but is that because uh, Mises and Rothbard were very interested in philosophical questions and they tried to you know, show the philosophical basis for their views, people make the mistake of thinking praxeology gives you some sort of solution to important philosophical problems like what's the nature of free will or how people say, how do we know that the praxeological theory? Well, I know, might know that this applies to my thinking, but how do I know it applies to uh, other people think? How do I know that other people don't have the same uh, certain axiom the various theories by them too? Well, uh, Praxeology is an attempt to solve the philosophical problem of other minds. I mean, basic philosophical question is one of the sciences that has a different method than empirical science. But in the sciences, we take the existence of the world and of the fundamental facts of the of human life for granted. We're not trying to engage in some kind of Cartesian project where we everything, just starting with her own existence and trying to prove everything else. So I think that's a limit on technology. I think some people would be reluctant to record it. I don't know that's I think you, you've certainly hit where, at least, 
in my own experience, I have noticed the, the limitations of praxeology and where other, um, you know, people like Mises and Rothbard also kind of say, this is the extent by which we can, can use this method of deduction. Um, but I, I, I wanted to kind of further expand or, or get your thoughts um, on a specific praxeological theory, and that is of um, Hans-Hermann Hoppe's argumentation ethics. Because I think um, I was very surprised when I um, went to Mises U back in 2021 that when you did the lecture on the argumentations ethics, you also had a critique of argumentation ethics, which I don't think is um, often given by people within the circle of the, the Misesian circle. Um, so I first wanted to ask you to kind of explain argumentation ethics for people who don't understand it. Um, and then we can kind of go into uh, the reasons you have to critique it. Well, well one point uh, we should, I uh, think, clarify is that uh, although uh, Hans Hoppe is a praxeologist, argumentation ethics is not part of praxeology. Praxeology, I mentioned, is a science of action. Argumentation ethics, it's a descriptive science. It doesn't tell you what you should do or what's right or wrong. But argumentation ethics is a view about uh, what the nature, what rights people have. So it's a different discipline. Now, in my lecture last year, which you were enough to come to. As I recall, uh, I didn't say that argumentation ethics was mistaken. I just said, well, I left it up to the listeners to figure it out. I, I'll, uh, if you'd like me to explain <coughs> what the idea is, uh, Hans Hoppe was uh, a student of Jürgen Habermas, who's a very famous uh, German philosopher. Habermas is quite uh, left-wing, somewhat of a Marxist. And Hans was influenced by him and also by another German philosopher. So what their idea is, and it's a certainly very interesting one, is that uh, if we make any kind of assertion, we're making a truth for uh, we have, we're, in doing that, we're implicitly saying that we can support what we say by argument. We can come up with reasons for whatever it is. We're saying it also if we do that if we're engaged in uh, argument, then we're in doing that, we're renouncing the use of force. That's just an argument in the sense of just discussion rather than for argument where you're at odds with someone. Better than that if you want to not have sort of argument, just discussion. So, say, 
we're discussing Pratt's theology now, so we're not using force against each other, talking things over. So the idea of Habermas and Alpha was we can get some notion of rights from asking what are the requirements for rational discussion. Now where Hans Hoppe comes in to this, he accepts this framework and he tries to show that what are these preconditions for writing that you can go take them in a libertarian direction. Uh, for example, he says that one of the preconditions for argument is that you own yourself, you own your own body. If you didn't own your own body, you wouldn't be able to uh, support, you wouldn't be able to engage in argument. So he thinks that's one of the conditions. And he feels it in that uh, he thinks that if, suppose somebody were to say, deny this, suppose somebody said, I don't own my own. So he thinks this would involve in a certain type of contradiction, like contradiction, where the very fact that you're making a certain statement would show the statement is false. So it would be something like, supposing I said to you, speaking in English, I've never in my life spoken an English sentence. So since that very sentence is an English sentence, my saying that would show that the statement is false. So Hans says that if someone were to say, I don't owe myself, the very fact that he was saying that would show that he does owe himself. So that's the basic step. And then he goes on to say to develop a principle of acquisition of property with that as the beginning. So as I say in my lecture, I didn't say whether that was right or wrong, but I just said that everybody should look at the argument, see what you think of it. Certainly it's certainly an interesting argument. Yeah, I, I I agree, and from when I heard argumentation ethics, I, I kind of had a similar thought that I believe you brought up in the lecture of a kind of, um, where it, it, at, at first glance, it can feel a lot like uh, a kind of gotcha, and, and um, kind of basically it implies that you, you can't engage in conversation without, you know, proving um hoppa right and and it kind of sets up this this um situation where it it may seem to the uh, the observer that he's just setting up uh goalposts that are unwinnable for you um and i kind of wanted to get, to get your thoughts further on that if, if why that view is either either incorrect or correct or um, just kind of what you think 
about that view because I've, I've seen it before as a criticism of argumentation ethics. Uh, well, I don't think in general it would be a, a point against an argument that <coughs> you really can't escape the argument. I would seem like it's pretty good if it's told somebody said, well, I've got uh, an absolute proof that such and such is true. Uh, we want to know what is the proof. But I mean, suppose somebody showed the proof and it seemed like it couldn't find anything wrong with it. I don't think it would be a good point against the such a proof to say, oh, but look, this is an absolute proof. There, there is something wrong with it. Now, one thing you might have in mind there is that Suppose someone uh, just didn't like the Congress conclusions or the sort of you had. Somebody might feel, well, this is kind of an argument that's forcing me to accept this, whether I, even though I don't like the conclusions, I'm kind of being forced into it. But there, I think we would want to address what exactly don't you like about it? Uh, in uh, Robert Nozick's book, Philosophical Explanations, in the first chapter, in the first chapter, he mentions this as a problem, as a future philosophical argument he tends not to like, but sometimes we talk of uh, uh, compelling arguments, uh, arguments will be. Kind of forced to accept, and he, he's trying. He was trying to avoid that. But <clears throat> I would say, in general, though, it isn't. You want to know if someone said, "Well, here's an argument that's inescapable." Uh, you want to know what's wrong with the argument, rather than just say, "Oh, well, look, I don't like this. It's pushing me." Direction I don't know. Maybe you should go in that direction. Now, as to the argument itself, uh, one thing I think point which again yeah, I think you'll see that think about is what exactly is the contradiction supposed to be? Say, an example I gave, uh, I say in English, I never in my life. Spoken English sentence, but the contradiction is clear that what I'm saying is an English sentence. So I'm saying I've never spoken English sentence, I'm contradicting that. But it isn't immediately obvious. Supposing someone says, I don't own myself. So why does that show, why does my saying that show that I do own myself? One great thought might be something like, well, if I say I don't own myself, I at least have control over my body. I wouldn't say I'm not, I wouldn't say if I didn't have any control over my body at all, then I wouldn't be able to say that anything. So at least I have control over my body. 
body, but self-ownership is a legal or ethical state of affairs saying who ought to have the rights of disposition over one's body. And that, for each other's service, seems a different question from who is actually in control of one's body. So there are certainly societies in which there are slaves that exist, slave society, and we would say that the slaves were able to talk and in argument, but wouldn't it be true that in those societies they don't own themselves rather say say imagine slaves says I don't own myself. It would seem like that he's making a true statement rather than showing by the statement that one says is false. So that would be one of the arguments against this, as I say, whether whether that's right or not is a different matter. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that you brought up the example of, of slaves because I think um, when it comes to the self-ownership argument, a lot of people will say, well, if self-ownership is the default, they'll, they'll point to the slavery example and say, well, you know, they didn't own themselves. But um, from your explanation and what I know about argumentation ethics, it seems to be more... You own your body in the sense that you literally own the the, the physical capabilities and, and mental capabilities of your body, not that you you know have the rights in society. Though you should, following this argument, you have the rights in society to do what you want with those um, with your body and those capabilities. But I think that brings up the question, though. Um, if I own my body in the way that I also own property, am I able to then from that argument sell that ownership of the body or does that create a contradiction? Um... Uh, yes, well, on the first part you mentioned, it certainly seems right that uh, people own their bodies in the sense they have physical control over their bodies. Say, imagine that I'm a slave. It wouldn't, slavery wouldn't mean that, say, I'm your slave. It wouldn't mean that because you own me, you now, as it were, take over my body as in these science fiction films where somebody just comes, something alien being just comes in and takes over the body. But in that sense, I think it's certainly like people who control their body, but that doesn't immediately generate any interesting conclusions about what ought to be the case in various kinds of legal, related, ethical uh, relationships between people. Now, uh, if on the question of slavery, if if you take the argument to show, as 
on this topic does that people, he takes the argument to show that people have libertarian rights over their own body. People have self-ownership rights over body. It would seem to me to be a consequence of that, that that right couldn't be given up you could sell your labor services for a certain length of time, but you couldn't divest yourself because again, in this view, it would be contradiction to do so. There, there are people, for example, Walter Block is one of those who accepts argumentation ethics, but also thinks you can sell yourself slavery. But I don't, I'm, I tend to think those positions don't go together very well. I don't know that I can show that they're going to contradictory, but I don't think there's a very good fit between those two views. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think you're certainly correct in that, and um... I'm glad you brought up the conclusions that come from argumentation ethics because I wanted to, as a kind of last kind of point on this, um, ask you what what, what conclusions we are drawing from argumentation ethics and and what use that has for us as, I guess, both um, Austrians and libertarians. I think that... uh... No, I just got back uh, a week ago. We had the Mises University in 2022. I think a lot of the students and the younger people in general find that approach very convincing. And I think it has some, it's useful to people and they find it very helpful. Spreading the libertarian ideas to their to their friends, and I should say uh, it's become in recent years. I don't think this is such a good development. This is the way it's happened. Is that uh, I know Hans is a very nice person. I know him very well. He's although he's a very nice person, there are people at other places who don't like him, they don't like some of his views on those. And so there's been a bit of a polarization. I think one reason is that other people uh, like argumentation ethics to stress it. It's a way for those people to show their identification with Hans and they're on his side various battles to some extent the battle between say libertarians who tend to have more conservative social values and those who don't so it's there's somewhat of a somewhat of a rivalry yeah yeah I, I I think I think I agree with you on on those points and um that certainly let we we've been seeing the value of argumentation ethics I think more, but also you you do have that 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 um, underbelly to it, where it 
it's kind of become a signaling device um, more than being used as the actual argument for some people. So, so I agree with that. Um, but I wanted to um, kind of wrap up um, and give you the floor now to promote anything of yours to my audience, um, anything that you wanted to let them know about and, and, and that either you're working on or, or something else. Well, I would think uh, one, I think people should read as much of the Austrians as they can the works of Mises, uh, anything by Mises in the author, just study these as much as you can. As you can. Uh, certainly, uh, the works by Hans Harper, I like the, is uh, one uh, democracy that God that failed, the very book that people should read that. So my advice to students, and I'm always working on is just keep reading as much as you can go over the various Austrian words. And one thing I find a mistake that people make when they're reading, they'll just read something and just try to get what they think are the main points of whatever they're reading. But you have to go for the details as well. You have to make sure, try to understand every sentence that's going on there. Don't just be satisfied. I think that's very good advice uh, for, for people and, and I wholeheartedly agree and uh, I wanted to thank you again for coming on and uh, very much appreciate it. Oh, thank you Peyton, thanks for inviting me, it's been a, a very enjoyable talking to you and I hope your program goes well. We must stop the terror. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank, Thank you. you. Now watch this drive. <laughs>